0: Good evening. This is Radio Free Bichelle. I'm Alphonse. Tonight, elite overproduction. You know, it's really only recently that it has become common opinion that the United States and and the West in general are facing a real political crisis. Not long ago, most Americans, even on the left, believed that the United States was the best country in the world. And most of the explanations that people give involve accusing somebody. It's always good to find someone to blame and find a moral explanation for the problems of the world. And I'm not going to say those explanations are wrong. I'm not going to say that the leaders or the politicians are good people. But I am going to say that there may be larger forces at work When you see a structural pattern like this, a big change, it's not usually a simple matter of a few bad apples. It's not as if human beings have changed and become worse in the past 10 or 20 years. There's probably something else happening. Mathematician-turned-historian Peter Turchin has an explanation for this. What he tries to do is analyze changes in society over long periods of time and see why they go through bad periods, of disintegration, and good periods of relative peace and stability and well-being. And in particular, he's written a book, Ages of Discord, about the situation in the United States, although he has also, in other books, looked at other uh, civilizations and societies around the world and throughout history. And he identifies three factors that lead to instability. The first of these is the well-being of the working class or the commoners or the peasants which he basically proxies by looking at relative wages. In other words, of the overall wealth of the society, how much goes to the workers? As that declines, you're likely to have more stability. The second is the fiscal position of the state. Basically, is there a lot of debt? And the third is elite overproduction. In other words, are there a lot of elites or are there a few? If there are too many, then the elites are going to be competing for a few rare politically powerful or influential or wealthy positions in government, private industry, and other institutions. Of these, he says, elite overproduction is the crucial one. When there have been revolutions in history, it's not usually simply that the peasants or the workers get fed up and rise up. They almost always have elite leadership. What happens is, when there are too many elites and people trying to enter the elites— a counter-elite forms. Because the elites are stratified. Within the elites, there's a huge range in wealth between those at the top of the elite and those at the bottom of the elite. And when there are too many people for the positions available, the size of the bottom expands. These people want to fight their way up. They want positions opened up above them so that they have opportunity to succeed. The dynamic that causes this to fail, that causes a problem here, he describes, begins in a period of relative well-being, a period where most people are pretty well off, particularly the working class. But then the elites, having forgotten perhaps that in the past there's been instability or as a result of too much inequality, start to take more for this themselves. As they do this, of course, they become better off. But they also grow in number. And as they grow in number, they compete with one another more and more. Even more than that, it requires more wealth to remain within the elites. The requirements, whether it's buying big houses or private planes or getting good educations or spending on election campaigns to win a seat in Congress, the costs of being a member of the elite goes up. And so there's more and more need to take wealth from the working classes in order to keep the game going. And so a crisis point is reached where the elites, while taking more wealth, instead of becoming better off themselves, become worse. But of course, they're not all becoming worse off. Some of them are continuing to do much better and better. As I say, the elites are stratified. And they're likely to break into different factions. An establishment faction and one or more factions that want to challenge the establishment and replace it. Turchin says the United States has experienced two eras of good feelings. The first in the 1820s, the second in the 1950s. And he says that there's a 50-year cycle, roughly, two generations, fathers and sons, which tends to map to a relatively stable period followed by an unstable period. And the unstable periods he identifies are the 1860s and 70s. The 1860s, of course, are when the American Civil War happened. The 1920s the 1970s, and finally, he predicts, he predicted in 2010, the 2020s. And of course, that means, he says, we're entering another of these periods. Now, Turchin makes his case with graphs and math and statistics. But to me, this resonates as a story that I've heard said many times about what's happening today. I mean, in terms of his statistics, he looks at things like the number of lawyers, because law is a key entry point into politics and, of course, into being wealthy. Also, the number of people trying to get into medical school and the number of doctors. Both of these have risen significantly since the 1970s. The relative wage of the working class has declined. And, of course, the United States is in debt. But as far as elite overproduction goes... I checked it out. In 2014, 30% of university graduates were unable to find a job in their field. In fact, in many colleges, most graduates, even 10 years after graduation, aren't making as much as the average high school graduate, and that amount is $25,000. So we have many students that are getting into great debt, going through school, coming out the other end, thinking they did all the right things, and they're not succeeding because there's no spot for them. Now, Turchin says that typically in history what happens is the counter-elite, the elites on the bottom who want to climb up, ally themselves with the miserable working class or the peasantry. And in fact, I think we've seen this in 2011 and 2012 with the Occupy movement. The slogan of the movement was the 99% against the 1%. But in fact, most of the people leading that movement were young, they were university-educated, they were urban. There were less 99% than 10% or 20% themselves. But Occupy fell apart, and Occupy was shut down by the authorities. It challenged the banks, it challenged the existing centers of power, and it wasn't allowed to continue. Now I think we may be seeing the second phase of this, where basically the same group has taken on a second cause, saying that they represent the marginalized, and this is the basis for social justice. But on a large scale... It seems to be targeting the same aim, which is to challenge the existing elites. At least that's what they think they're doing. Well, I happened to come across, even before I read Turchin, another book that had a worrying comparison. And that was Gutz Ali's book, Why the Germans, Why the Jews? Which is a prehistory of the Holocaust. In Weimar, Germany, between the wars, something very similar happened. You see, the Weimar Republic was liberal, and they opened up access to education. Many people, many families who had not been able to afford to send people to school before, now were able to send their sons to college and to university. But what they found was there was always already a group that was extremely successful, and that was the Jews. In the 19th century, the Jewish students in Germany proved that they were far superior, on average, to German students. In 1886, for example, in Prussia, the largest or one of the largest states in Germany, the population was only 1% Jewish, but 10% of university students were Jewish. And the result was that they were taking the white-collar jobs. Now, Germany at this point was a new country. It was newly modernizing. These white-collar jobs were the new hot thing. And in 1900, 11% of Jews with jobs had white-collar jobs, compared with only 3% of Christians. You can imagine how the students felt about this because they were facing the same thing then that American students are today. In 1931, 32% of university grads in Germany were unable to get jobs in their field. And there were projections the situation would get worse to the point that Germany would need three times as many jobs as it already had in order to absorb all the students going through university. And who did they blame? Well, one of the groups they blamed was the Jews. It's not surprising that university students were among the first to jump on the Nazi party, to support it vigorously. And the Nazi party itself was made up of people like this. In 1930, the average age of a party member was 29, much younger than the age of members of the other parties. And these people weren't people who felt they had fallen. They weren't people in the middle classes who felt that they were losing their privileges. No, These were people who were among the first of their families to be climbing up the pole. The first to go to university, the first to go to college. People from small towns and villages who'd gone to school, gone to the city, and hoped to get good jobs. That was the core of the Nazi party. And what these people wanted, what the students wanted, and what the Nazis wanted, one of the things they they pursued was to free up spaces for them and for people like them to enter the elites. And the way they wanted to do that was to kick the Jews out. Well, that's a pretty dire comparison. So let me give a little bit more positive one, one that showed up in Turchin's book and I found quite unexpected, which was the American Civil War. This kind of takes one of the critiques of the American Civil War and and partly flips it on its head. One of the critiques is that the Union didn't enter the war to free the slaves. And that's absolutely correct. Uh, Lincoln said he was not aiming for abolition, and most Northerners were not abolitionists. What they objected to wasn't so much slavery as slave power. What they didn't like was that the, the, the planters in the South, with their huge population of slaves, not only ruled the South, but had tremendous control in the United States as a whole. They dominated Congress, they dominated the Senate, they dominated the economy, but new elites were rising up associated with industry and with high technology, the high technology of the day being the railroads. And they were looking for an opening for themselves. They wanted to take down the existing Southern elite and take their place. And when the Civil War came up, they were able to jump on a moral justification for what they wanted anyway, which was the abolition of slavery. So you can take this as a negative thing, saying they weren't really doing it for the slaves, Or you can take it as a positive thing, saying that a historical force of elite competition and elite overproduction led to an alliance and a political cause that was worthy and eliminated an evil institution. But I think the bigger picture point is, when we look at the problems that we have today, it's not simply a matter of bad people doing bad things. I mean, that may well be true, but if we really want to solve the problem, we have to address the problem of elite competition. We're putting a huge amount of resources into education. A lot of the people getting that education aren't using it. So that's wasted money. That's wasted resources for the whole society. It's particularly wasted for them. And although I think that it's easy to say that a small elite ruling society is not a great thing, that's certainly how I feel, but that at the same time, a large elite may be even worse. This is Alphonse. For Radio Free Bichelle, www.beszel.ca. Good night.